0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Bandyke Undercovers. Award-winning music writer Holly George Warren has written the first biography of Alex Chilton, A Man Called Destruction, a life-to-death account of Chilton's life, covering his time in the box tops, in Big Star, and eventually becoming an alternative and indie rock icon who influenced bands like Wilco, R.E.M., and Yola Tango. The story of Chilton's life is also the story of the changes in rock and roll over the last four decades, from the golden days of AM radio singles and Southern Soul, to albums created as personal artistic statements, to the industry changes wrought by indie rock in the 80s, 90s, and into the 21st century. The path that Alex Chilton chose came to personify the indie rock aesthetic in which experimentalism, no matter the commercial cost, prevails. In my recent conversation with Holly George Warren, I began by asking her why she decided to write the first biography of Alex Chilton.
1: Well, you know, I knew Alex um, going back to 1982, and of course I was a huge fan of his work and all his many, many, many guises. And, you know, I think that's one problem as far as having a more well-known name is that Alex was very, very restless artistically. Personally, I found that to be you know very intriguing and very inspiring that the guy was into so many different kinds of music and was always on a quest to do different kinds of music that and he didn 't want to just kind of rest on his laurels or just try to milk whatever reputation he had you know previously, whether it be Bogstops, big star whatever so to me, that made him so fascinating to research and write about and then um, the other thing is that when he passed away, I was at South by Southwest, and I was totally in shock. I was so upset about his death. And my literary agent, um, who had been kind of prodding me to come up with my next biography, because my previous one was on Gene Autry, the singing cowboy, and a great progenitor of uh, country and western music to the masses and by cowboy songs, etc., um, she said, Holly, this you've got to write about Alex. This would be, you know, a great way to help, you know, perpetuate his legacy. And and you know, and it turns out a lot of publishers thought it was a good idea. I was very heartened to find out that there was a great deal of interest in Alex from the publishing community. So I was able to get Viking, you know, Jack Kerouac's publisher, um, as my publisher, and. You know, I I was thrilled about that. Um, The other little thing that was in the back of my mind was that way back in 1992, after I'd done a big interview with Alex for uh, this great magazine, no longer in existence, called Option, um, and I just started writing books at that point and passed along a couple that I'd worked on to Alex. And he called me kind of out of the blue to see if I'd be interested in doing a uh, kind of You know, he said it kind of a book of his crazy adventures on the road with the box tops that he wanted to write. And would I be willing to help him write that? And, you know, that kind of took me by surprise. And uh, sadly, we never did do that. But the fact that he had thought of me as being a collaborator kind of also helped give me the impetus to do this book.
0: Mm. Let's go back to these early days of his. And I've only had the occasion to visit Memphis a once in my life, my wife and I went down there within about the past oh four or five years or so ago, we instantly fell in love with this city being being from Detroit. It reminded us so much of Detroit because it has it 's one of the few cities in the u s that can rival Detroit in terms of the most seminal music ever made in the history of popular music came out of Memphis and came out of Detroit. I mean, you got Mm -hmm. sun and stacks in Memphis and you got Motown here in Detroit and Eminem and the white stripes and so many other things. And yet uh, a city, you know, that struggled with with a lot of issues, racial issues, extreme poverty. We we felt that when we were there, and yet it just had this beauty and soul to it. Talk, talk about the uh, the the influence of Memphis on uh, the young Alex Chilton, and take us into him recording this incredible song, "The Letter," when he was a real young kid.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty amazing, um, and it, Alex's life and career pretty much. Um, move along with the development of popular music, the whole rock and roll thing. Because when you figure the year he was born, 1950, was the year Sam Phillips opened um, his recording service that would later become Sun Records, this incredible label where, of course, you know Elvis, Jerry Lee Lewis, Johnny Cash, you know so many others, Carl Perkins uh, recorded, and of course a lot of black artists like uh, Howlin' Wolf. Um, You know, it's just this amazing hotbed as far as really giving birth to rock and roll. But then also, um, unlike, say, Nashville, there was even a little small jazz scene in Memphis, which Alex's father was very much a part of. He had actually been a professional musician um, playing around with his brother Jack Shelton back in the 1930s, but gave it up to raise his family. Um, but they were based out of Jackson, Mississippi then, and, um, when Alex was about six or seven, he started having these soirees at their home in Memphis, um, where a lot of jazz musicians came over and they would jam, you know, late into the night with Alex, you know, sitting on the steps listening. There was a lot of records around the house from a very young age. Alex got into um, Ray Charles and Chet Baker, which you know both influenced his own singing. I think very much. Um, He was quite younger, much younger than his older siblings, and his big brother um, turned him on to the coasters when he was a little kid. Um, He did listen to country music. He liked the Grand Ole Opry. He heard from you know neighboring Nashville and WSM. And, you know, his sister was into folk music, like the Kingston Trio. And then, of course, in 1964, he, like every other kid his age, um, which was, you know, he was 13 at the time, got totally knocked out by the Beatles and the British Invasion and, you know, loved that music while also being a big fan of uh, Wilson Pickett and other artists who were recording right there in Memphis on Stax Records, so he loved R&B and soul. So, I mean, he really, you can kind of understand how his own music would be so multifaceted because he grew up with just all these different kinds of music. Later in life, he was a big fan of gospel music, um, and I wonder if he also probably um, heard some gospel music on some of the black stations you know like WB um, DIA I think is the title of that really great um, groundbreaking radio station in Memphis um, so he was part of that he loved all that music and Memphis was a real music town as far as lots of kids having garage bands and uh, so he started playing in a garage band when he was about 14 and by the time he was 15 he got um, Offered a slot as the lead singer of a local band that was quite popular, called the Devilles, who were making quite a bit of money playing frat parties at, you know, like neighboring Ole Miss and places like that. And um, that was the group that went into American Recording Studio to cut a song by an unknown songwriter uh, from Springfield, Missouri, named Wayne Carson Thompson, produced by a first-time producer who had just moved up from Muscle Shoals and already had some hit songs that he had written, uh, Dan Penn, and of course, Alex had never been in the studio before, and that song was the letter, and just, you know, was exploded uh, they they were able to uh, sell the song to um, this guy named Larry Utah, who was kind of a Jerry Wexler wannabe, um, who had a label called Bell Records that had already put out a great hit called I'm Your Puppet. Oh, yeah. Uh, that was recorded there, a uh, soul song that was recorded in America. And so he just, again, as a fluke, stopped in to see what else was going on, heard the song, and was like, we got to put this out. Um, when they told him it was these teenagers called the DeVilles, he's like, well, they've got to come up with a different name. There's already another group called the DeVilles. So uh, Dan Penn apparently and the manager of the group kind of brainstormed and came up with the box tops based on, like, you know, well, you tear off the box top from cereal boxes and put it in an envelope and mail it with a letter to get a prize. So <laughs> so it was came up with that title just to tie it in with the letter being this, song that they knew was going to be a big hit, and it was. It was the number one song in the country for a whole month in 1967.
0: Wow. And there was a lot of incredible music coming out in 67. Yeah.
1: Wow, for a yeah, whole Yeah, the other chart toppers, you know, around the same time were Ode to Billy Joe oh. and uh, All You Need is Love by the Beatles. So, I mean, it was pretty phenomenal. And so here's Alex, all of 16 at this point, um, barely 16. You know, drops out of 10th grade in high school and goes on the road and pretty much spends the next three years touring with the box tops or in the studio. Um, even though the whole group played on the letter, um, most of the subsequent recordings until the fourth album were done with the house band, which were these incredible players later nicknamed the Memphis Boys at American Recording Studio. But um, but he and the group, you know, toured and were on double bills with, like, Buffalo Springfield and The Doors and, you know, just played all over the country.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, how did the box tops uh, transition into Big Star? How did that one group end, and then how did Big Star begin, and when did that happen chronologically?
1: Well, you know, as the 60s were moving on, you know, Alex, of course, got caught up in the counterculture and playing these double bills with kind of the heavier groups and bands that were writing their own songs and doing, you know, what they wanted to do and were starting to get airplay on the new FM stations that were beginning to pop up, he started feeling very constricted being in, you know, what he considered kind of a teeny bopper, you know, pop band, even though now, listening back, we hear, you know, those records really hold up. They sound fantastic. But, you know, it's hard to tell a teenager what to do, and uh, he started getting tired of being told, you know, which songs to sing and how to sing and all that kind of stuff and really wanted to do his own thing. So he eventually quit the band um, in February of 1970 and soon after that moved up to New York City and started just kind of woodshedding, working on his guitar playing and writing songs, and actually started going to open mic nights at little folk clubs around in the West Village, kind of incognito. No one realized it was this guy that had been a hit, you know, uh, the lead singer of a hit band. And um, some of those songs that he wrote, uh, while he was in New York, would, be on number one record, the first big star album, because uh, Chris Bell, who had already started a band uh, with Andy Hummel and Jody Stevens, um, had a different name. They were playing around and had made a demo tape that didn't really go anywhere. So they reconnected, and Chris had Alex you know, come down and see them play the next time he was in Memphis. They hit it off. So basically, he joined their band, and they started cutting the songs that would be number one record and they ended up changing their name to Big Star as well. They started recording before they even had a name, but um, they were pretty much left to do whatever they wanted at this very cool studio in Memphis called Ardent, um, where they made that first album, and um, Ardent had a little label that was going to be distributed by Stax Records, which, of course, as I mentioned before, put out all these great soul records and everything. Mm. At this point, it was really huge with Isaac Hayes. So... um, Unfortunately, the album, when it came out, did not get very good distribution because there was a bit of turmoil happening at that point at Stax. Um They kind of fell in the cracks between AM and FM. You know, the FM stations thought they were too poppy to be played, and then the AM thought they were a little too weird to be played. So they really didn't get much airplay, and the fans that did discover the records, could barely find them in record stores. So it was just this horrible situation where they made this incredible record and it just didn't, you know, have any success at all.
0: What happened to Alex Chilton? It sounds like a lot of not very good things around this period of time where you're making these critically lauded albums and yet hard to find, no one knew about the music, and the band came to a close, and it sounds like he went through some really, really difficult times after that.
1: Yeah, well, you know, Chris Bell was so discouraged and really had pretty much like a mental breakdown, and... Um, quit the band, and the band was pretty much going to break up um, after that, but what happened was, if you've seen the... There's a really great uh, documentary out about big Star, which have tells not, the I story. I have not...
0: I haven't seen that documentary. i got to track that down. Yeah, yeah it's,
1: it's, it's great, and it covers that there was this crazy uh, rock critics convention in Memphis that was organized by one of the PR guys at Ardent, and um, he was able to convince just the trio of Alex Jody and Andy Hummel to perform as Big Star for these rock critics from all over the country and even from the UK were in town, and they just blew them away. They were so good that night that um, they decided to go back and cut another record as Big Star. Alex had already been you know, writing a bunch of new songs and cutting some tracks with other musicians that weren't actually in Big Star, so between those tracks and some new ones that they cut, there was another Big Star album called Radio City once again, uh the band had bad luck with you know the labels even going more downhill as far as distribution um and then they tried to tour a little bit. They actually um played up in Michigan um in East Lansing oh. and they had a whole week booked at a club called the brewery uh, near the campus and um Unfortunately, not many people came out but um uh, a rock critic for the local campus paper wrote a rave review, and the club, you know, fired them. But when his rave review ran, they, they like hired. They got hired back because he was afraid, oh. angry. You know, people would come knocking down the door, like, "Where are they?" You know. <laughs> so, <laughs> sadly, still not that many people came. But they did do this little tour, and they played up in, you know, Cleveland and. Um, just around, you know, places here and there. They played in Boston. They opened up for Badfinger, but the night before their equipment van was stolen, so they had to play on borrowed equipment. I mean, it was just like one kind of disaster, disaster after the next. Mm. So yet again, uh, the band kind of fizzled out. Uh, the bass player, Andy Hummel, quit. And uh, still, though, Alex was incredibly creative at this point in time, um, just bursting with songs, was still writing more songs, and went into the studio and recorded an album, which is arguably, I mean, I kind of think it's like a a double album. It could have been half a big star album, half a solo album, because uh, Jody Stevens was an important part of the record. He brought in the string section that really added to the songs, and uh, one of his songs is on the album, Um, but it's very much Alex Chilton's vision, and it's pretty amazing record. It's been called Third. It's been called Sister Lovers. It was never even properly released after it was recorded because at that point, Stax was out of business, and um, they could not even find a label that would put it out. They thought it was too weird and, off, you know, just off the wall. So it languished for about three years before finally it, it was released. Mm, mm. You. By that time, there was no more Big Star. <laughs> no more Big Star. Uh,
0: right. Uh, and uh, Alex completely left uh, the music uh, business for a while after Big Star broke up? And no, that, well, what he did
1: have... He did eventually, but he continued to explore all kinds of musics um he' actually moved back to New York City in nineteen seventy seven um, he again he he nothing could stop him from writing songs and recording and he did enter a period of kind of some um personal problems, um a little bit too much partying, a little bit too much pill popping and boozing it up and uh was started, starting to take its toll on him. But um, he managed to cut some songs that were released on an indie record, indie label, right when punk was really starting to take off in New York around CBGB's and Max's Kansas City. And the whole indie, you know, scene was starting to happen in the 70s. So he ended up playing some gigs in New York in 77, and um, was really welcomed with open arms uh, back to New York. So ended up living in New York City about a year, almost, um, playing all the time at these punk clubs, doing punky songs, new songs, and discovering a band called The Cramps, which uh, Mm -hmm. were, of course, kind of doing this psychobilly, you know, a lot of old Memphis rockabilly songs and stuff like that. So Alex fell madly in love with that band, took them to Memphis and produced their first records. And also, a little bit after that, he started cutting some, I call it kind of ground zero of Americana music. He started uh, cutting kind of re, you know, like deconstructed, reimagined versions of songs, you know, early country songs by the Carter family and Ernest Tubb you know alligator man a song from 61 that he'd learned um from a folky friend john harold in new york to some you know kind of twisted pop stuff um and that record uh was called like flies on sherbert and it came out it was pressed up in the you know 500 copies and came out in 79 you know a few people that reviewed it hated it Personally, I loved it, <laughs> and uh, he continued to do some shows. He started also playing guitar with another kind of uh, rockabilly blues band um, called Panther Burns, um, which was organized by a guy named Tav Falco, very interesting um, musician, and Alex for that group was just a uh, guitar player, was not out front singing or anything. So he did that for a while, um but finally, by like eighty one he had decided he was going to try to quit drinking um He was starting to fizzle out um you know he was burning a lot of bridges, and by eighty two he moved to New Orleans where he chose to quit drinking, which you know most people are like, what New Orleans <laughs> that's where you go to drink, yeah, you know?
0: exactly,
1: but he managed to do it. he pulled it off, he took a hiatus from the music business for a while, and then came back in the mid-'80s uh, with a trio, writing songs, recording again, and touring, and pretty much spent the 80s touring and recording his own music, and again, similar to the late-'70s, all kinds of covers from, you know, country, gospel, blues, soul, you know, R&B, you know, you name it, uh, he was doing it.
0: You knew Alex. What what was this man like? Was it, I mean, was he a quintessential tortured artist by the time uh, at the end of his life had he found some some peace some happiness so that's one that's a and part and b part is if we were our listeners people listening were to buy one album by alex what what would you recommend in his career
1: oh my gosh okay um well Number one, Alex was um, an incredibly brilliant man. Um, loved music. Was himself a huge fan of discovering music and loved to turn people on to it, to books, to music, things he was interested in. And um, he did fortunately find peace near the end of his life. His personal life uh, was very good when he horribly passed so so tragically young of you know a heart attack. And um, he, I think, had also reconciled his feelings of, you know, his past problems. He was touring with, um, you know, Big Star, Reconstituted Big Star, and with the Box Tops, and seemed to enjoy those shows where sometimes he was conflicted about it. And as far as making a choice, oh my gosh, it is so incredibly difficult to choose just one, (laughs) Um, (laughs) because he was so incredibly versatile. Um, So... I would have to say, I mean, Rhino did put out an album years ago called 19 Years that samples from his solo albums um, and some big star stuff that came out in '92. But I would highly recommend just, you know, these days you don't have to pick an album. You know, that's yeah. what the, you know, digital. the digital world is all about choosing singles. So I would say to sample, you know, some box up stuff a lot of there's a lot of his stuff is on Spotify the dreaded Spotify but you know if you want to just start getting your feet wet you can try that but you can just go crazy finding all kinds of great music on Alex depending on what you're into you know cuz he did it all